Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and information about improving the health and well-being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory, or even the quality of an older person's health care. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specializing in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. In today's episode, I'm going to talk about the initial medical evaluation of an older person when there's been concern about memory or thinking abilities. So if a person's thinking abilities seem off, or diminished, this is technically called cognitive impairment. And if a person is experiencing any cognitive impairment, then it's really important to have this medically evaluated because as I'll explain in more detail in the episode, there are a number of different medical conditions that can affect the brain's ability to manage its thinking processes. And some of them are treatable and reversible. So it's really important to get that medical evaluation when concerns about a person's cognition come up. And as you can imagine, although actually people of any age can become cognitively impaired in younger people, a common cause would be intoxication, although severe illness can do it as well. But as you can imagine, this is an issue that comes up a lot with older adults. And in particular, Sometimes older adults themselves become concerned about their cognition, but it's also often something that worries families. Families notice that an older person seems to be becoming forgetful, maybe is repeating himself or herself, is seeming more confused, is perhaps getting lost while driving. I mean, these are all sort of common concerns that can come up. And this tends to lead to questions such as, is this normal aging or is this something more significant? Uh, what is wrong? Is this going to continue? In some cases, could this be Alzheimer's or another form of dementia? I don't know that families really think this, but they should. You know, can this be treated or reversed uh, rather than assuming it's normal aging, which is one thing that I, I definitely don't want any of you to do. And, you know, ultimately it comes down to, you know, what should we do about this? So the answer to the last question is that if you are worried about an older person's memory or thinking, then you do need to seek out a medical evaluation because often when families start worrying about an older person's cognitive abilities, uh, there often are some underlying health issues that are there that are affecting the mind's function. And so it's really important to get that evaluation, to have any underlying causes or contributors detected and treated if at all possible. And this isn't something you can do entirely on your own. You do need the help of a qualified healthcare professional. So in this podcast, we're going to talk about what that initial help should look like. That way you'll know what to expect and what the health providers might ask you about. Now you may be wondering, is this the same thing as being evaluated for Alzheimer's or another form of dementia? So, I mean, this is related, right? This is how we first pick up on potential Alzheimer's or dementia is that an older person starts having memory problems or getting confused or something else seems kind of off. However, it's not always Alzheimer's or another form of dementia. It's important to not 
uh, assume that. And basically this is, you know, this is the broader symptom of a person's memory or thinking processes not working right. And if, if that comes up or shows up, then there needs to be this first initial evaluation. We could call it a preliminary evaluation to check for common causes, especially common medical causes. And I'm going to go over 10 common causes in a bit. And I want you to know that this this can, and honestly, it should be done in the primary care provider's office. Experts generally agree that an initial evaluation is doable by a general internist or family practice doctor. And then after that initial evaluation, if there's uncertainty about what's going on, or if it seems that a more in-depth cognitive or maybe neurological evaluation is required, then it's certainly reasonable to refer to a specialist. But I, uh, I'm personally always a little bit saddened when people tell me that they they got concerned about memory problems and an older relative and mentioned to the doctor and were just right away referred to neurology because that, that often generates a you know a delay actually in looking for some things like we're going to talk about medication side effects in a little bit that could be detected and potentially treated by a generalist physician. So, in my experience. Uh, it unfortunately is not uncommon for older adults and families to not get an adequate initial evaluation from their health providers. This might be because the provider thinks this has to be done by a specialist or feels busy or doesn't feel comfortable, uh, but it can lead to delays. So that is part of why I decided to write an article recently on the website spelling out 10 common causes of cognitive impairment and 10 key steps that a generalist can do as part of the initial evaluation. Because if possible, I would like to help you get that initial evaluation sooner rather than later. And so my hope is that in writing this article and doing this episode, you'll have a better sense of what you can ask your usual doctors to do or try. Specifically in this episode, here's what we're going to cover. I'm going to talk a little bit more about cognitive impairment and a few things that I think you should know about it. And then I'm going to cover 10 common types of health conditions that can cause cognitive impairment that basically cause the you know memory or thinking functions to not work as well as they should. Then I'll go over 10 key steps that health providers should generally take during that initial evaluation for cognitive impairment in an older adult. And that list of 10 things is based on the practice of uh, geriatricians such as myself, but it's also in line with most expert guidelines on the initial evaluation, if there's been concern about memory or thinking. And then I'll finish by sort of summarizing what I think you should expect from that initial evaluation and what the next steps might be depending on what the initial evaluation finds. So now a little bit more on cognitive impairment. So again, what do I mean by this? This is a broad term. That means any kind of problem or difficulty with things like memory, thinking, concentration, and other functions of the conscious brain. And they have to be problems that are beyond what might be expected due to normal, quote unquote, cognitive aging. Now, this is itself, you know, um, something that can be confusing to the general public. And I think even a lot of practicing doctors aren't entirely clear on what's considered changes due to normal aging and what's not. There are also people who are just, you know, they're borderline, right? I'll put a link in the show notes. But generally, as the brain gets older, we do expect certain changes, which include uh, some of the brain's functions slowing down a little bit. So the brain's processing speed tends to go down. Something called working memory gets a little worse. 
The ability to multitask gets worse as people get older. It takes a little longer to retrieve memories. And there are a couple other functions that work less well. But in a normal aging brain, neurons don't die or become significantly damaged. They just don't work as effectively as before. So I'll, I'll stop there for now, but I'll share some links in the show notes if you want to learn more about cognitive aging. And um, I'm actually realizing I've never done a podcast episode on it, and I'll have to address that at some point because it, it is actually a really interesting topic. Now, going back to cognitive impairments, another thing that I want you to know is that although it often does come on sort of slowly, little by little, it can actually come on fairly suddenly. It can also be temporary or it can be permanent. Um, it may or may not keep getting slowly worse. It all depends on the underlying cause or causes. So one of the things that should happen in that initial evaluation, we'll talk more about this, is that it is important to get at the history of you know the pattern and the trajectory, whether this is something that has come on little by little and has been going on for months or whether the person was their normal self a few days ago and suddenly has become quite different. So again, cognitive impairment is just this, you know, the symptom of the brain not working well. And so like other symptoms of the body not working well, such as for instance, shortness of breath, it's just articulating kind of a, a symptom of a certain body system not working well. And the evaluation is necessary to figure out exactly, well, why isn't this working well? And so that's the purpose of the initial evaluation. And so the initial evaluation is really meant to assess for the common causes of cognitive impairment. So before I go into the actual steps of the evaluation, let me share what those common causes of cognitive impairment in older adults are. And before I go into the list, like many problems in older adults, there is often not one single reason that an older person's memory or thinking processes are not working as well as they should. It's actually fairly common for there to be multiple reasons. So this is another problem that is what we call multifactorial, really common in geriatrics. So that Usually there's not just a single reason why something isn't working well. It's often several things kind of combining at the same time. So as clinicians, we never want to sort of check for one thing and find and say, oh, that's it. It's always important to check for other potential causes or contributors because it is so common for a single person to have many things that are contributing to either their brain not working as well as it could or multifactorial causes are also common for other issues that come up in geriatrics such as falls or physical decline. Now what are these common causes of cognitive impairment? And again, bear in mind that for some older people there will be more than one going on. One of them would be medication side effects. So many medications interfere with proper brain function. This is an issue that I've addressed before on the podcast and also on the website. So especially sedatives, tranquilizers, and anticholinergic medications. So that means those medications that often give you a dry mouth and constipation. These all interfere with proper brain function. If you want the uh, longer list of medications that might be interfering with brain function, I'll post a link in the show notes to the article for types of medication to avoid if you're worried about memory. So we always want to be sort of asking ourselves, could some of this cognitive impairment be due to or be made worse by medication side effects? Another potential cause to consider is something that we call metabolic imbalances. This basically means abnormalities in one's blood chemistry, such as abnormal levels of blood sodium, blood calcium, 
or blood glucose. And then if a person has dysfunction in their kidney or liver, that can also cause certain types of metabolic imbalances, and some of those sometimes affect brain function. A third potential cause of cognitive impairment in older adults would be problems with hormones, such as thyroid hormone. Research also suggests that imbalances in estrogen can affect cognitive function, so that's especially an issue for women around the time of menopause, and then possibly testosterone as well. We don't routinely check estrogen and testosterone levels in geriatrics when we're evaluating for cognitive impairment, but research does suggest that they play a role as well in proper function of the brain cells. A fourth potential cause of cognitive impairment is deficiencies in vitamins and other key nutrients. So brain function is known to be um, especially affected by low levels of vitamin B12, and a vitamin B12 deficiency is not uncommon in older adults. The brain also needs folate and other B vitamins. The brain also requires a variety of other vitamins and nutrients, but generally the vitamin B12 and other B vitamins would be the main ones we would check for during an evaluation. And then a fifth potential cause of cognitive impairment in an older person would be delirium. So this is that state of worse than usual mental function that can be brought on by just about any type of serious illness. It's quite common in hospitalized older adults, but people sometimes don't realize that delirium comes up in people who are not hospitalized also because just being sick enough or having enough physical strain on the body can affect the brain's function, especially if it's a brain that's vulnerable and maybe has some underlying damage that sometimes people aren't even necessarily aware of, and only when they get sick and lose sort of their physical reserve do they show the symptom of delirium. So that's always another potential cause to consider, especially if the change in mental function has come on over a shorter period of time, like a few hours or a few days. A sixth cause of cognitive impairment to consider is psychiatric illness. So most psychiatric conditions can cause problems with memory, thinking, or concentration. And psychiatric illnesses can also cause symptoms such as paranoia and other forms of late-life psychosis. So in the average older adult, depression and anxiety are probably the most common psychiatric conditions, but there are some older adults who also have less common psychiatric conditions such as bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, or other forms of major mental illness. These have often been diagnosed earlier in life, occasionally. it's I would say it's a little less common for it to be diagnosed for the first time when people are older than 70, although it's possible. Moving on to the next potential cause of cognitive impairment, a seventh potential cause would be substance abuse and or substance withdrawal. So both acute intoxication and chronic overuse of certain substances, such as alcohol, can impair brain function. Some older adults are also overusing prescription medications or even illegal drugs. So when an um, older person is cognitively impaired, it's important to not overlook the possibility of substance use. Sometimes some people might assume it's more of an issue for people who are younger, but can affect older adults as well. And now for an eighth potential cause of cognitive impairment, that would be damage to brain neurons due to an injury. So especially a vascular injury. So vascular 
means uh, refers to the blood vessels and the brain, just like every part of the body, is nourished by blood vessels, big ones that divide into smaller and smaller ones that can nourish all the cells. So it is possible for neurons to be damaged because of a stroke, which is you know a problem with a larger blood vessel, or even with some form of cerebral small vessel disease, which means damage to the much smaller blood vessels in the brain. And that's a topic I covered in episode 48. Another form of injury to brain neurons would come from uh, some form of head injury. Now, a lot of head injuries in older people end up causing uh, some form of bleeding or vascular damage, but it's also possible to just have you know traumatic brain injuries that can uh, cause temporary or longer lasting cognitive impairment. So that would be another possibility. And now for the, a ninth potential cause of cognitive impairment, this would be damage to brain neurons due to a neurodegenerative condition. Now, what is a neurodegenerative condition? So these are conditions that tend to slowly damage and kill neurons in the brain. And this can start off causing mild cognitive impairment, and it can eventually cause full-blown dementia. This is actually a fairly common cause of cognitive impairment in older adults because the more common neurodegenerative conditions include Alzheimer's disease, Lewy body disease, Parkinson's disease, and frontotemporal degenerations. So people sometimes are a little unclear as to what's the difference between Alzheimer's disease and dementia. So dementia is the umbrella term of the kind of outer set of symptoms that people develop, which is that they basically have significant problems with memory or some other aspect of thinking that are bad enough to impair their ability to function in day-to-day life. And also all these other kind of medical causes and psychiatric causes have been ruled out. That's a sort of brief definition of dementia. But the underlying problem in the brain that causes that can vary. So Alzheimer's is when they look in the brain, it's a, you know, it's the specific accumulation of certain types of protein and damage to the neurons. And Lewy body dementia is a different type of accumulation of proteins and damage to the neurons. But you know, as more and more neurons in the brain become damaged, they start to malfunction and then they die. And that leads to sort of uh, more obvious cognitive symptoms. So that's an important category of cause of cognitive impairment is neurodegenerative changes. But these tend to come on slowly and progress more slowly. And then the last category that I'll bring up, it's not as common in older adults as the other ones, would be infections. So it is possible for certain chronic or even acute infections to affect brain cells directly. Now, if cognitive impairment is caused by an infection outside the brain, such as pneumonia or urinary tract infection, that would generally be considered delirium, but it is possible to have infections that affect the brain or the lining of the brain, and those can easily cause cognitive impairment. There's one last category that I'll mention very, very briefly, which would be toxins as a cause of cognitive impairment. We don't, in geriatrics, routinely evaluate people for toxins, but you know, famously lead used to affect the brain and people's um, cognitive abilities. We've now eliminated it or tried to, you know, minimize it in our environment and our exposure. So there's a lot of research that's ongoing as to the cognitive effect of other toxins that we're currently routinely exposed to, such as heavy metals, you know, there's mercury in fish, air pollutants, contaminants in our drinking water, pesticides, and so forth. But it hasn't yet entered the realm of uh, routine clinical practice as part of a cognitive evaluation, but I did want to mention it. So now that I've covered the most common causes, 
of cognitive impairment in older adults, let me go through the sort of 10 steps of an initial medical evaluation. And again, these 10 steps reflect my own practice, the practice I would say of most geriatricians, and is in line with most expert guidelines related to the evaluation of cognitive impairment or of possible dementia. They're often kind of conflated together. And again, most experts agree that these steps can be done by primary care clinicians. So step one is that the clinician should ask about and document the patient's concerns about memory and thinking. So at a minimum, the clinician should ask an older person something like, so have you noticed any changes in your memory or thinking abilities or, you know, have, have you been concerned about anything? Now, many older adults will either have noticed nothing or won't want to talk about it. This is one of the challenges, actually, of developing this kind of symptom and problem is that people are often uh, not able to perceive it. That's part of their cognitive impairments. Or they might become kind of anxious and defensive about it. That's still worth noting, actually. If an older person doesn't notice something that lots of other people are noticing, that's a cognitive symptom that is is worth noting. Now, in many cases, an older person does have some concerns or observations. And so if they bring those up, then these should be explored and the clinician should write down what the older person says they are having difficulty with or what kinds of changes that they have noticed. And so it's especially important to ask when the problem started, whether they seem to be getting worse, and how quickly things seem to be changing. Number two, the clinician should obtain or request information on memory or thinking difficulties from family members or other informants. So again, older people who are experiencing some cognitive impairment are often either unaware of the issue or they're reluctant to reveal it. They may be worried about what the doctor is going to tell them or about their driving privileges or ability to live where they are, you know, they may be concerned about that. And it's also been shown that older people with cognitive impairment are poor reporters of their symptoms and abilities. So for this reason, if a health provider has been alerted to the possibility of cognitive impairment, and sometimes clinicians notice it themselves, right? They they really are supposed to make an effort to get information from a family member or somebody else who's knowledgeable, and we often call this an informant. And the best is to ask a family member to complete a validated questionnaire, such as the 88 informant interview. This is a questionnaire of eight behaviors to kind of observe and make note of. They have uh, been correlated with developing Alzheimer's eventually, and that's been studied in, in clinical trials. But otherwise, just asking the family member, you know, what have you noticed? What, what is this person experiencing difficulty with? What kind of changes are they? How long has this been going on? So it is sometimes necessary for the health provider to be diplomatic about requesting and getting this information from family members, especially if the older person finds it upsetting. Now, people sometimes think that HIPAA doesn't allow doctors to talk to family over an older person's objections, but actually clinicians do have some leeway in these situations. And if you'd like to learn more about how much leeway clinicians have, I'll post a link in the show notes to the article I wrote answering questions about HIPAA. And that was covered in one of the podcast episodes as well. Otherwise, family members can facilitate this process of helping the health provider gather information from informants by bringing in a written summary of what difficulties they've observed or by sending it in ahead of time, especially if they're worried that it might upset their relative. So step number three. So the next thing health providers should do is ask about difficulties managing instrumental activities of daily living, IADLs, and activities of daily living. So these are those basic life tasks 
that people need to be able to do to live independently and that generally most older, uh, most adults are able to do. Why do we want to ask about these when we've already asked about symptoms? Well, this is a way to be sort of specific about, you know, are the cognitive problems affecting important daily life functions? So, you know, this gives a little bit of structure to documenting the problems and also identifies what might be, you know, a safety risk or an area in which the older person might need a little extra support while this evaluation is ongoing. Again, health providers should ask both the patient and a knowledgeable informant, because again, we know that many older adults with cognitive impairment are not reliable reporters of what difficulties they're having. So the instrumental activities of daily living are especially prone to be affected by cognitive impairment. These are those higher level tasks that people often learn as teenagers. So things like driving and other forms of transportation, managing finances, managing grocery shopping and meal preparation, home maintenance, managing the phone, the mail, other forms of communication, and medication management. So these are all things that require usually like a fair amount of mental coordination and capacity. So they are often the first things to start to go a bit awry when a person is experiencing cognitive impairment. And they're relevant to people's ability to live their life safely. So health providers are supposed to ask about them. And then they should also ask about the ADLs, activities of daily living. Those are the more fundamental ones that people learn during early childhood, walking, getting dressed, getting to and from the bathroom and managing your toileting appropriately, feeding yourself. Occasionally those are affected early on due to cognitive reasons, but that's that's less common. I mean, usually if older adults are having a limitation with that and uh, they don't have more advanced dementia, it's because of, of physical limitations that may have come up. So this ability to manage IEDLs and ADLs is something that we in geriatrics call functional ability. And so when they're impaired, we call that functional impairment. And again, to us, that's very important because this provides a practical lens on how severe an older person's cognitive impairment might be and on what steps might be necessary to support them while the cognitive issues are getting evaluated. And then last but not least, impairment in daily functioning is a key criteria that separates mild cognitive impairment from more significant impairment, including dementia. So if a person is having significant difficulty managing their finances or their meal preparation or their shopping, I hear about such people sometimes then being diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment, which I find a little strange because if it's bad enough to impair day-to-day functioning, it's kind of gone beyond mild cognitive impairment. Sometimes I think providers say that just because uh, they don't want to give somebody a scary diagnosis until they're sure, which is understandable. But again, my key point is that it's important for health providers to ask about this and document which life tasks an older person is having difficulty with. That's the kind of key takeaway for now. So now for step four. Step four would be for the health provider to check for the presence of other behavioral, mood, and thinking symptoms that might be related to certain causes of cognitive impairment. So these include things like hallucinations. Is the person seeing things that aren't there or hearing things that other people don't hear? Are they experiencing delusions, which means believing things that most other people don't believe to be true? Are they experiencing personality changes, you know, starting to just become like a very different person, a very different temperament that does happen? Has there been any apathy, you know, losing motivation and interest in things? Have there been signs of depression, like, you know, sadness, crying, guilt, uh, or apathy is actually can also be a sign of depression in older people? Or have they been experiencing more anxiety symptoms? Have they been getting lost? 
And then the last one I'll mention would be confusion about visual spatial tasks. So visual spatial tasks are things that require your sort of mind and eyes to coordinate what you see and to be able to, in your head, manipulate three-dimensional figures. So an example of this would actually be looking at your shirt and understanding which way to turn it to be able to put it on. That's actually a visual spatial task. Or managing your way around certain, physically around certain spaces also requires visual spatial processing. Visual spatial abilities are not supposed to change with aging, actually. So if they are changing, that is certainly worth noting. So those are some of the additional symptoms that doctors can ask about because that can help them later zero in on certain causes of cognitive impairment or possibly rule some of them out. The fifth thing on my list would be to ask about any new symptoms or changes in physical health. And it's especially important to ask about symptoms that are related to neurological function. So to the function of the body's nervous system, which is your brain and your nerves. So that would be symptoms such as new difficulties with walking, with balance, with speech, with coordination. It's also recommended that clinicians check for signs that are associated with Parkinson's. They're called Parkinsonism. And the classic ones would be a resting tremor, especially in the hands or forearms. And that's resting, not with action. And then stiffness. Those are two sort of classic signs that are associated with Parkinsonism. And then Parkinsonism is associated with, first of all, certain types of medications, actually. It can be a medication side effect. And then also certain forms of uh, neurodegeneration can sometimes be caused by certain forms of small vessel damage to the brain as well. Now, which exact questions the clinician asks is going to depend on the older person's particular medical history and the other signs and symptoms that have been brought up. So next, the sixth thing that I have on my list is that the health provider should ask about substance use and consider the possibility of substance abuse or withdrawal. So again, excessive use of alcohol, certain prescription drugs, such as tranquilizers or of illicit drugs, all of those can affect cognitive function. So it's important to ask about an older person's use of those substances. And then also important to note that suddenly stopping or reducing substances, especially alcohol, can occasionally cause or worsen cognitive function. So that's another thing to consider. Next, number seven, is to review all medication with a focus on identifying those known to worsen cognitive function. And when I say medication, it's not just prescription medication, but also over-the-counter medication. Uh, Many easily available over-the-counter medications are quite anticholinergic, such as diphenhydramine, the brand name Benadryl, which is a strong antihistamine, which is used not only for cold and allergy symptoms, but it's also the sleeper medication that's included in things like Tylenol PM or NyQuil. So really important to review all the medications with an eye towards identifying sedatives, tranquilizers, anticholinergics, and other medications known to worsen brain function. Sleeping pills would be another consideration. And then number eight, the health provider should perform a physical examination. And what's especially important during this physical examination, now if it's a generalist, they'll almost certainly check blood pressure and pulse, but what's especially important is for them to do a basic neurological evaluation, including observing the person's gait, the way they walk and balance, their balance in general, their coordination, and then again, checking for the tremor and stiffness, which could be signs of Parkinsonism. So next step, number nine, would be to assess the older person's orientation and perform some type of office-based cognitive test. So assessing orientation means checking to see whether 
the person is able to say things like what day it is, the date, the month, the year, and where they are. We call that being oriented to place and time. We also sometimes ask people who they are, and that would be uh, testing to see if they are oriented to their own person. And then there's some office-based testing to check on the person's memory and thinking abilities. So there are a couple tests that can be done in the primary care environment. Probably the shortest well-validated test is called the MINICOG. This means asking somebody to remember three items. Uh, So that's called a three-item recall, and then asking them to draw a clock and correctly place the hands, which is actually harder than it sounds and is a pretty good, you know, it's considered a pretty good preliminary evaluation of somebody's memory and thinking skills. A more detailed office-based cognitive test, which I use a lot and it can be done in primary care, would be something like the MOCA test, Montreal Cognitive Assessments Test. There's also another one that's called SLUMS, St. Louis University Mental State Examination. These are tests that involve one sheet of paper and they take, um, especially if a person is impaired, I would say they take 15 to 20 minutes to administer. So in the primary care setting, you often have to sort of schedule a visit just to do that test, but it, it is doable there. And they do offer a lot of information on how somebody is doing. So, so that's recommended. Now, people have sometimes heard of a test called the mini mental state exam which is also scored out of 30, similar to the MOCA and the SLUMS test. That one is not used so much anymore. So first of all, it's actually copyrighted. And the owner of the copyright several years ago sort of declared their intent to pursue that. And so it became a test that you weren't supposed to be using unless you were paying the creator to use his test. But also, you know, in studies, it actually doesn't do as well as the MOCA. It's easier for people, especially if they have a good education, to do particularly well on it, even if they're impaired. And it's also a little bit less accurate in people who have less education. So that one's no longer considered a particularly good test by geriatricians, but uh, some providers in the community still use it. And it seems to be the one that the public is most familiar with. It is a little faster to do, I would say, than than the MOCA. But again, you know, what's important is for some kind of little objective test to be done to document just the person's memory and thinking abilities per the test on that particular day, because we do need to collect data and observations as we do this evaluation. And so now for the last 10th step as part of the initial evaluation would be to order laboratory testing, unless it was recently done and consider brain imaging. So in most cases, if an older person has been experiencing any cognitive impairment, then it is appropriate for the health provider to order blood tests to check for common health problems that can cause or worsen cognitive impairment. And in particular, it's generally appropriate to order something called a complete metabolic panel, which assesses electrolytes, kidney function, and liver function tests. And so electrolytes, like your blood sodium level, People, older adults can have their blood sodium become too low due to their medication, and then that can make their thinking worse. So, you know, it's important to check for these types of things. We would also normally check vitamin B12 and thyroid function tests, and then additional tests would sort of depend on the person's history and other things that came up. If you want to know more about laboratory tests that are often ordered in older adults, I'll post a link to an article I wrote about that. And then there's the question of brain imaging. So different expert guidelines over the last 20 years have 
sort of come to different conclusions. The neurologists, uh, the guidelines from the American Academy of Neurology, if I remember right, generally do recommend a CTE or an MRI. Some of the other groups concluded that, you know, most of the time it doesn't seem to help much or make a difference. It seems to me that it's extremely common for it to be done. In most cases, that brain imaging is going to reveal signs that we would consider nonspecific. So there'll be things like signs of some cerebral small vessel disease. But as I've explained in the article on this condition in the podcast episode, that's very common in lots of older adults and doesn't correspond to symptoms very well. It's also very common for an MRI to show some mild atrophy. You can't see Alzheimer's in particular a brain MRI, even though it's associated with you know some extra shrinkage in certain parts of the brain. So a lot of specific causes for cognitive impairment cannot be definitively ruled in or out by brain imaging. That's really the important thing to know. And also the brain imaging doesn't tell you whether the problems are bad enough to affect day-to-day function. So, so I would say brain imaging is, is kind of optional. And those are pretty much the 10 steps for the initial evaluation. So to kind of summarize, that initial evaluation should result in four key things happening. So first of all, there should be a documentation of the patient's and family's cognitive concerns. So documenting what the patient and family have noticed in terms of difficulties and changes in memory, thinking, behavior, personality, or other aspects of health. The second thing that should come out of this evaluation is that there should be documentation of any functional impairment the older person is experiencing. So this means documenting what the patient and family have noticed in terms of difficulties managing life tasks, IADLs and ADLs. And then this is often overlooked, but it's really important. But if an older person is having difficulty managing their medications or other aspects of their medical self-care, then it's really important for clinicians to be aware of that and consider whether they can simplify things or otherwise compensate by providing a little bit of extra support. So a third key thing that should come out of this evaluation is that objective assessment of the older person's memory and thinking skills through some form of standardized office-based tests. I mean, even if it's only to ask the person, can you tell me the day of the week, the date, the month, the year, where we are, and have them draw a clock even that is helpful because it creates a little objective data point. And clinicians are also supposed to document their impressions and observations based on talking to the older person. I mean, does the person seem confused when the doctor talks to him? Do they seem paranoid? Are they repeating themselves? Are they tangential and kind of going off on tangents? Are they able to answer questions in detail or not? I mean, these are all sort of observations that the clinician can and should be documenting because that information helps build the picture and the evaluation of what might be going on. And then the fourth key thing to come out of this evaluation is, again, that checking for common medical causes and contributors of cognitive impairment. We want to especially find those things that we could treat, modify, or manage, such as the medication side effects or the electrolyte imbalances or you know any of the other causes. I mean, Many of those causes are potentially treatable. Now, neurodegenerative changes are um, generally considered not reversible. You know, potentially certain lifestyle changes might, you know, slow down the, the progression, but some of the other things could be treated. And so that's what's supposed to be happening during that initial evaluation. A check for those things that might be making things worse and that could potentially be changed. So how long does all of this take? Well, I would say that generally... It's doable in two primary care visits that basically everything other than, you know, a medium length cognitive test such as the MOCA can be done in 
a first uh, visit. It certainly helps a lot if family can bring in information about what they've observed. And then a second visit is also helpful for you know following up on lab tests that might have been ordered during the first visit. And so then after that, now what? So what happens next really depends on several things, such as whether the health provider was able to draw conclusions about what is the most likely cause or causes of the kind of impairment. It might also depend on, on how the person's mental state has evolved or changed since the issue was first brought to the attention of the health provider. It'll depend on whether treatable conditions were identified and whether the doctor and patient family were able to make changes, right? So perhaps they discovered that an older person is taking quite a lot of a benzodiazepine sedatives such as lorazepam, brand name Ativan. Well, that is something that cannot be stopped quickly. It's a whole process to slowly wean people off those kinds of medications and see if their memory and thinking get better. What happens next will also depend on how the patient and family feel about the evaluation. I mean, unfortunately, some Sometimes patients or families become, you know, a, a bit anxious about it and then they don't want to come back in or, or, or what's honestly more common is that an older person is reluctant to come in to see the doctors and the family has a lot of trouble getting them to come in and to come for the follow-up visits. So that question of how willing and able an older person is to cooperate with the evaluation is really important. What happens next will depend on whether the clinician feels that referral to a specialist is necessary. It is quite common for people to be referred and not necessarily, you know, a bad thing. I just think ideally people would still get that first evaluation with their primary care provider. And then lastly, what happens next partly depends on the health provider's willingness and ability to help an older person and the family in addressing any functional impairment or any safety issues that have come up. So you're probably wondering, should you expect a diagnosis or an answer after this evaluation? Honestly, probably not. Even with an adequate initial evaluation, cognitive impairment often takes a few months to completely evaluate and diagnose. And that's in part because it's usually necessary to try treating one or more potential causes to see whether that resolves the issue. And then if it comes to something like a neurodegenerative condition, such as Alzheimer's or some of the other dementias, those can take a while to diagnose, especially if an older person comes in when their symptoms are still fairly mild or early. It can take a while because, you know, you're first supposed to exclude all these other potential causes and because the healthcare team might decide to wait a bit and just see how things evolve. So yeah, so this initial evaluation is important and the truth is it's not realistic to expect definitive answers, but that doesn't mean you can't expect some explanations. So what should you expect? I would say that your health provider should be able to explain, first of all, how substantial the cognitive impairment appears to be based on the office-based testing, the evaluation so far, and the functional difficulties that have been observed and documented. Your health provider should be able to explain what was checked for and what has been ruled out or deemed unlikely as a cause for the problems you've been worried about. Uh, your health provider should be able to explain whether any of the medications might be making memory or thinking worse and what the options are for stopping or reducing those medications. And then they should be able to explain what they propose to do next to further evaluate the issue or to follow up on it. So if you've been worried about memory or thinking problems, you do want to ask for that medical evaluation. And if your provider skips any of the steps I mentioned, I would say don't be shy and you know ask about it because either it's an oversight or they should be 
able to explain why it's not necessary or why they're referring you out for it. Now, this probably won't get you all the answers and certainty that you've been hoping for, but you've gotten started. And that's vitally important because this has to start with that initial evaluation. It's better to get it sooner rather than later. Now, you may well be facing an extremely common problem, which is the problem of not being able to get the older person in to see the doctor. That's super common. I've written about it at times on the site, and I think I need to you know, try to come up with more to help people think through their, their options. But you know, if that's the case, then all the more reason to make sure that when you finally do get the person in to see the doctor, that important things get done, right? Because then it's not easy to come back. <laughs> And, and do more. So you want to get the most out of uh, that visit and as much of that evaluation done as you possibly can. So if you've been worried about uh, somebody's memory or thinking, I hope this information will help you get more out of your visits to your regular doctors or to whatever health providers you consult for assistance. And then if you want to know more about the diagnosis of dementia specifically, I'll post a link in the show notes to an article I wrote about that where I explain the specific criteria that um, have to be met in order to conclude that a person has dementia. But remember, just because an older person is showing some signs of cognitive impairment, that does not mean that they have dementia or that it's something like Alzheimer's for sure. What it means is that they need evaluation to be checked for those common health conditions that can cause or worsen memory and thinking. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes. And I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.